All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Rob Bernacki. Rob is head instructor of Island Top Team, creator of Submission Formula BJJ Formula, Modern Leg Lock Formula, purveyor of the Rob Bernacki Online Academy, a master of conceptual jiu-jitsu, and occasional master's competitor. And in this interview, we discuss conceptual BJJ, the use of mini battles to develop your skills and chances to improve, how each area of Brazilian jiu-jitsu can be singled out and worked on by following a blue to brown progression path, how you can improve in your BJJ ability as a performer faster, the use of the scientific method in learning, and so much more. To find out more about Rob, you can follow his BJJ Academy website at https islandtopteam.com, follow Island Top Team on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as bjjconcepts.com. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Rob. I've been a major fan of yours for years now since I found you through Stefan Keston. But for those few people under a rock who've maybe not heard the name or your sort of your principle-based jiu-jitsu, um, how would you describe who you are and why you're becoming a legend in the sport? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> that is that is a far too flattering introduction. Uh, I... Uh, I would say I'm far from a legend. Uh, I um, I'm I'm just a nerd who talks about conceptual jujitsu. That that's what people know me for. Uh, I'm uh, as far as the sport of jujitsu, I'm a uh, you know an occasional masters competitor. That that's a, that's that's the extent of it. Uh, my impact on the sport has been entirely created by uh, the the teaching method that I've developed and the uh, the online instruction that's available. Whether it's through my uh, site, which is bjjconcepts.net or .com, either one will get you there, uh, or the work that I've done with Stefan Kesting, which is probably what I'm most well known for. Like if, if anybody has seen me, they've seen me on YouTube in a video with Stefan Kesting, most likely. Uh, some of our videos have, I don't know, like 100,000 views or whatever, which is you know nothing in the world of the internet, but for jujitsu, it's pretty good. So I, I, I like to say that I'm very slightly jujitsu internet famous, uh, and that's that's the extent of my legend status. It's better than being famous for a lot of things on the internet. You know, you could be famous for TikTok. Oh, fuck's sake. Yeah, <laughs> fair, enough, fair enough. You know, when I, when I see that stuff, I think, yeah, I think we're going the right way of doing this kind of stuff. But, I mean, that's why, when I found your stuff, I mean, I thought, oh, here we go, another guy just talking about jiu-jitsu. But I never heard some of the concepts you talked about. I mean, I, I'm a blue belt in jiu-jitsu through Gracie Barra. And I, I had been... T- taught moves and some chains and some very basic sort of concepts never had i been told about levers and wedges and you know like 
there was a wee bit about posture, but that was more basically pull their head down. You know, it didn't really go into the depth that you did. But so just to sort of begin with, could you give a quick overview of the various concepts? I know you're probably sick of discussing these, but these were groundbreaking to me. And I know this is going to blow people away who are listening. who have never heard this, especially in sort of common jujitsu settings. The basic concept that I use is the concept of alignment. That is kind of a catch-all term that it, it's meant to identify how you position your body to generate force. One of the things that I, I, I always hesitate to take too much credit for uh, anything that I've done with uh, like, you know, instruction and, and, and you know, changing anything in, uh, in the jujitsu sphere. It's just, I'm, I was lucky enough, I guess, to be involved in a sport where the level of coaching and instruction is in its infancy. Uh, all I really do is try to apply the same level of, uh, I guess, like scientific rigor and uh, pedagogy methodology and coaching methodology and all that, that you see in other sports, uh, even other combat sports that don't really exist yet in jujitsu. So like if you were to do a sport that's fairly well developed, whether it's you know, in combat sports, whether we're talking about boxing, which has been at a professional level for, you know, well over a hundred years, even wrestling, which has been at a, you know, Olympic and collegiate level for probably a similar length of time. Uh, and then, you know, just other professional sports like uh, you know, football, uh, hockey, whatever. There's a tremendous amount of just proper coaching. Like the, the coaches are very well educated in, uh, in sports science and pedagogy, that doesn't really exist in jujitsu. So w when I talk about alignment, uh, like every sport that we do, there's a an optimal way to move your body to generate force. And in most sports, that has been heavily researched and it's been sussed out, uh, you know, empirically due to high level competition for many many decades. And again, that just doesn't exist in jujitsu. So to uh, take something like the positioning of our body, which again, you, you use the term posture. Uh, posture is a very common term in jiu-jitsu, usually very vaguely defined. Structure is another term in jiu-jitsu, vaguely defined. And base is a, another term in jiu-jitsu, again, vaguely defined. So what I've just tried to do is give those three things, base, posture, and structure, very specific definitions that allow people to better understand what they need to be doing with their bodies at all times to be as physically effective as they can be. Whatever your potential for generating force is, if you have good alignment, you can actuate that potential. And if you don't have good alignment, it doesn't really matter how many moves you know. Like this is the the big, uh, I, I would say flaw in the way jiu-jitsu is taught is it is taught as a collection of techniques or moves. And it's impossible for most people to learn to any high level by just randomly memorizing and applying moves. However, it's not impossible for really good athletes or for people who are unbelievably dedicated and are just going to train endlessly. Like despite the, let's face it, bad instruction that's generally used uh, in jujitsu, like the bad instruction methodology, uh, people still get quite good at it. And that's just a testament to people who are insanely dedicated or, you know, genetic freaks. But for the average person who's just doing this because they want to do a cool hobby, that level of instruction is so suboptimal that it results in practitioners who've been training for half a decade 
and they're still pretty shit at something that is honestly really cool and a lot of fun to be good at. So if I've done anything to contribute to the sport, it's to try to push forward the notion that a lot of the coaching methods we use are antiquated. The ways that we describe jujitsu, the ways that we communicate jujitsu, which is as a random collection of techniques, uh, is wholly inadequate, both for uh, elite practitioners, but especially for hobbyists. Uh, if, if you're just you know an average person, you will benefit tremendously from receiving actual proper like coaching that up until probably pretty recently uh, and still pretty pervasively lacking, but up until pretty recently, you would not have access to high level coaching in jujitsu unless you were an elite athlete and at one of the most you know successful jujitsu teams on the planet. Whereas that doesn't really, you know, again, if you, if you go to a, a, a normal combat sport, you know, like if you go, if you learn wrestling in high school from a wrestling coach, that wrestling coach will be using the same methodology that an Olympic uh, wrestling coach will be using. He, he may not be as experienced, he may not be as good, but it's roughly the same methodology because there's a, a pretty well-developed system. And the same thing exists with judo. You know, again, like if you, if you were to go take a, a you know, coaching from a tennis coach, He's going to be using a lot of the same methods that elite level tennis coaches will use. Again, they won't be as good at it, but it's roughly the same method. Whereas it, we've got so few elite coaches in jujitsu uh, that the the average person who's getting coaching in jujitsu, you know, from a black belt, is just getting some guy who is using completely antiquated, almost like borderline useless coaching methodology. Uh, and so that like all I'm doing with, with some of the concepts, alignment being the main one and the emphasis basically being on how do we take a human being with no knowledge of grappling and give them an understanding of what they need to be doing with their own body, then give them an understanding of what they need to be doing to affect somebody else's body so that you can control them and submit them. And there are, you know, a handful of concepts, uh, and alignment is the main one because without that, everything kind of falls apart. Uh, but then we also talk about frames, levers, and wedges. We'll talk about momentum and center of gravity, just understanding basic physics, uh, understanding things like timing. Uh, and, and once you understand those things, and once you understand that uh, jiu-jitsu is a, it's not a collection of moves. It, it's, it's a collection of movements. It's certain skill sets that all elite practitioners use that most schools don't teach either at all or don't teach unless you're a, an active high-level competitor. And so again, just understanding what it is we need to focus on to actually be good at something it is quite lacking in the world of jiu-jitsu. And I'm just trying to contribute to it uh, being a little bit more widespread. That is a fantastic answer because when I started watching your material, I actually began to understand jiu-jitsu on a sort of deeper level because initially when I started training, it was, you know, pull them into guard, then do a scissor sweep, then take mount. Then, you know, It just didn't seem to be a logical way of learning. But when I actually started listening to your material, yeah, especially the BJJ formula you did with Stefan, it was it kind of was mind-blowing to me. It was like an, an operating system for jiu-jitsu, where the moves were various programs, where it didn't matter really what guard it was on, because you could then look for the lever. You could then look to manipulate where you could put a wedge and you could how to build a frame. And it just blew my mind because I never even been taught that sort of thing. Why do you think that's not a kind of standard approach? You know, why are we taught the movement? Is this because most people learn 
through the repetition of movement patterns or is that the belief do you think or is it that most coaches aren't trained in this kind of understanding well it's a little of both so uh, i have this saying and i don't remember where i got it from but it's that uh, inertia is the most powerful force in human affairs and basically it just means that like the way that things are done tend to stay the way that they're done right like uh and so the the what i referred to earlier is is like you know, the, the coaching methodologies that have been developed in combat sports and how they were arrived at, they were arrived at by virtue of the, like the nature of a sport that is taken to a, a very high level is very different than the nature of a hobby that is presented to the general public. Uh, and what we suffer from in jiu-jitsu is the fact that most people who own jiu-jitsu schools are not in the business of training athletes. They're in the business of selling a hobby to the general public. And it takes a lot of time and effort to become a good coach. And the market payoff is at this stage uh, fairly minimal because jujitsu has been going through a like incredible growth uh, as a you know, as, as a as a global entity, as a hobby for people, uh, the supply of jujitsu instruction is not enough to keep up with the demand. You, basically, anybody in uh, outside of major markets, like obviously, if you're in New York or LA or probably London or wherever, like you know, in, in certain big cities, the supply is starting to get saturated. But overall, on a global scale, there are still plenty of places you can go where there isn't even you know, a black belt available to teach, let alone uh, like a good black belt, let alone a good black belt who's invested themselves in coaching. So the the majority of people who run jujitsu academies are not professional coaches. They are people who did jujitsu as a hobby. They want to continue to do jujitsu as a profession. They're not going to be able to do so as a competitor. The, the amount of people who can make a living as a jujitsu competitor is still vanishingly small. So if you want to make a living in jiu-jitsu, you're going to do it by opening a school. And at this stage, because there's still not enough saturation in the market for people to demand really high quality instruction, I would say that the inertia that is creating the problem is the fact that jiu-jitsu is a, is a business uh, more so than a sport. Uh, and as long as the business side is more heavily weighted, you're going to have people who don't really need to be good at coaching because there aren't other good coaches in their area that are raising the level that are going to force them to compete. So you're better off as a, as the owner of a jujitsu club, investing your time in, you know, sleazy used car salesman marketing tactics uh, and, you know, appealing to, uh, you know, kids, parents and having a big kids program rather than trying to figure out what is the best way to teach. So the only people that are doing the the figuring out of what's the best way to teach are the you know the elite coaches of the sport, and even some of those, frankly, there isn't a ton of pressure just yet because the the amount of coaches at the elite of the sport that are really trying to use cutting edge pedagogy and sports science and all that, uh, there still aren't a ton of them. Although it's growing, like we're definitely in a phase where the the level of coaching has. Uh, just increased dramatically, I'd say, over the last 10 years or so. Uh, there are more excellent coaches now than ever, but they're still the minority in the sport, which means that they're a vanishing minority in the overall 
uh, jujitsu sphere. So yeah, like I, I just I don't think there's a lot of market pressure yet. It'll happen. Like it's just a matter of time. Uh, but you can definitely at this point be a just dog shit coach and still be a successful jujitsu business owner. And I think that inertia is what's driving it. It's really quite sad, isn't it? Because I was just listening to that just now thinking, yeah, I know quite a few coaches like that where it's you, you kind of have the lion's share of students. So why would you change your plan or why would you do differently? because you've got that market you know and it, it's a real shame that people don't want to feel motivated to then go and learn to develop themselves further but you know why are they going to bother if they've got the money coming in if they can you know for the less work why are they going to go to try to push to that ne- next level excuse the horrible bun um but something that i was blown away by was when i when i started sort of understanding your material i started to see roles in jiu-jitsu matches or, you know, thinking back to situations I struggled with. And it was almost became like there was no longer an opponent. It was more a case of there's a lever or there's an area to put a wedge in. It was almost like they became, uh, I think on the BGJ Models podcast, they, they mentioned about looking at it as a skeleton with frames, with areas to put frames, levers, and that sort of thing in. Is that a good way of looking at it? It's, you, it doesn't matter who the opponent is. There's always something to kind of manipulate, fill, maneuver, lift, if, if you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's actually something that I actually try to convey to people, especially uh, at the beginning of someone's training, because jiu-jitsu is a little bit weird. And I mean, I guess any combat sport is kind of weird in that People, and when I say people, it's almost exclusively guys. Uh, guys think that they are just going to be good at it because it's fighting. There, I, I often say that uh, you know all guys think they're good at three things: and it's driving, fighting, and fucking. And they're wrong about all three because all of those things are skills that need to be developed. And we look at, uh, and I'll often use uh, tennis analogies here, but like we, we would look at showing up for a tennis class and expecting to be able to beat the tennis coach as, you know, the height of stupidity. Uh, Nobody shows up for a tennis class when they're a beginner at tennis and just think, man, if I just lose my shit, if I just rage really hard, I'll be able to beat that guy at tennis. But people believe that about jujitsu. People really believe that if they just try hard enough, they'll be able to win a fight despite not having any, like, combat skills. And so when we get into teaching beginners, I mean, one, we try to weed out people that are that like aggressively stupid that they believe that and just not let them train. But even despite that, even despite people understanding on a cognitive level that they're not supposed to be good at this, they very much view rolling or sparring as fighting. And they get very emotionally invested in the idea that they have lost, the other person has won, or they've won and the other person has lost. And that approach, it lacks clarity and it lacks just kind of a a mental equilibrium that you need to have to be effective. If you're way too invested in the winning and losing and all that, then you're just not going to be effective. So approaching the whole scenario as just there are movements that are going to be exchanged. Uh, you, if, if a technique is effective against you, it's not that you lost. It's just that like the, the, a good way to look at it is jujitsu always wins. The better jujitsu will always win. And in any given moment, 
one of the participants will be channeling better jujitsu and that, and just depersonalizing it in that way and only looking at it as it's a lever, it's a frame, there's a, uh, you know, a rotational control being applied, there's posture being broken, there's base being affected. If you just kind of depersonalize it, it can make the analysis in the moment a lot clearer. Now, that does ignore, to a certain degree, um, a level of like gamesmanship and, and game theory that can apply between two competitors. So there, like once you start to get into the, like the really high level of competition where everyone knows the moves, it's, it's rare that you'll see people get surprised by something new. It can come down to psyching someone out and bluffing and things like that. But that's much more a like a higher order competition thing. When you're just training, when you're trying to develop, when you're trying to see what's happening, it's extraordinarily beneficial to just look at it as a depersonalized series of movements and know that like regardless of how good somebody is, it's impossible to take away or to eliminate all options. And it's just your job to find the option, to find the lever, to to find the the flaw in someone's base or their alignment or whatever. Uh, and, and seeing it that way, like th- th- that's really my goal. Like to, the fact that you're able to view jujitsu through a more uh, like comprehensive lens than you were before viewing my material. It, that's like that's the highest order compliment that I can receive because that's my that's my ultimate ambition in the, in jujitsu in life is to take this understanding that most people have of jujitsu, which is really substandard. It's really poor and elevate it to the point where they're, where, you know, a blue belt is viewing a jujitsu conceptually the same way that a lot of black belts do. And, and that, like the, the fact that that's possible is, is really gratifying. Yeah. Cause it, it was weird. It was like, when I watched the first, I think it was just the first course concepts you um, you and Stefan did on the BGG formula, yep. and I was like, it was like it opened, you know, that kind of like the lights and doors opened and went sort of like the buzzers went off and like you've hit the next level, and it's just like I actually understood things I never kind of gathered and why you know base wasn't just sitting back on your heels and trying to be heavy, why posture actually mattered or how what you were you were looking to change the alignment of somebody's spine where you were trying to prevent them from doing it to you and there was that sort of mini battle and then you mentioned a, a concept of like the mini goals where it's a fight for an underhook or it's a fight to get into a certain position but then from that position you know you're it's another competition it's another competition and that's idea of many kind of competitions so it's not just whoever gets tapped loses it was like, who wins to that position? Who wins to that position? I had never thought of that because I'd always thought, oh, I'm getting my ass kicked here. Oh, I had a bad role and I'd sulk. When I started listening to that, I was thinking, yeah, I was doing well up to that point. Then I got caught. Okay, now I need to work on this section. And I could then understand, oh, I could have used his leg there as a lever to flip him or whatever, you know. And it, it really kind of, I mean, I'm all just getting into it and it kind of blew me away. And I was thinking, like, how did that concept of looking at things as mini battles come about? And could you give an example of how somebody could use alignment, levers, wedges, you know, like say passing a guard or a submission, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it, I was heavily influenced by Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall is probably the first well-known conceptual instructor in jiu-jitsu. So I tried to take ideas that 
that he presented and and run with them in developing my my teaching system and just my my system for learning jujitsu. So I always say that like half my job is teaching jujitsu, the other half is teaching people how to learn jujitsu. Uh, so as far as the um, like all those little mini battles, I mean th- those just are those are at some point I think were self evident. I don't actually remember where. Um, where I kind of keyed in on, on that particular uh, notion, although it's quite possible that it's something else that I, I got from Ryan Hall. Um, when w- one of the reasons that I started to emphasize it uh, is it, it's, it's almost exactly as you mentioned, which is when beginners come in, their entire, uh, like, I guess, self-esteem is based around the tap. It's like, if I got tapped, I lost. If I tapped someone, I won. And for a beginner, the road to actually tapping someone can be a very long one. Like it's quite possible for someone to do jujitsu for six months without ever tapping an opponent in a, in a regular role. And if that's the case, then you just went six months without having a single win. And it, like, it's pretty tough for a human being to have that level of lack of success and still pursue something. So by breaking everything down into the constituent battles, we give the opportunity for even beginners to have success. And I explain this to everybody before their first class. We have an intro where we go over, you know, the alignment stuff, the base posture structure, the frames and levers. And we also go through training mentality. And training mentality is so important because you know, unless you're a dedicated professional athlete, you're doing this as a hobby. If you don't enjoy it, you're not going to stick with it. So the ability to recognize those incremental battles and know that even as a beginner, just the act of recognizing that somebody has affected your posture by grabbing your head and you grabbing their wrist and accessing a lever and pulling their arm off of your head is a victory. So like that is the example. it, It can be literally as simple as that as you are approaching someone's guard you're trying to pass, they grab the back of your head or they grab your collar and they are now accessing your spine as a lever. And you recognizing that that is a bad thing because in jiu-jitsu, we want to deny people access to levers. We want to access levers on their body. So you recognizing that is a win in and of itself. Even if nothing, even if you're not able to break that lever control, even if you're not able to access a lever on their body, which is you know, usually it'll be at the hand or the wrist and break the grip, whether it's at the collar or in the back of your neck. The fact that you knew to do it and the fact that you tried to address that range battle and you knew enough to do so is a win. Even if the other person is either so powerful or so skillful that you weren't able to get rid of that grip and they still were effective in applying a, an, an off-balancing movement and sweeping you, you still, within that exchange, experienced the victory of understanding what you needed to do. And that has a, a motivational power that I think many people are severely lacking in their training. They tend to, as you say, like I was just getting my ass kicked for the first six months. Well, yeah, I mean, we all do, but there are still small victories that if you learn to recognize them can be very motivational uh, because it's just a matter of like when you're rolling against somebody who's a superior artist to you, you're going to lose most of the battles. Your job is just to recognize the battles, attempt to do the right things, and force the other person to take more steps to beat you. And every time you do that, you're winning because you're developing. 
because that's all we're the reason we're showing up to train is to develop. If you're showing up to train to win, then you're kind of an idiot because training doesn't really involve winning on any level. It's just development. Winning happens in competition. It happens, uh, you know, in different scenarios, whether it's uh, jujitsu competition or uh, MMA competition. Winning can certainly happen if you get into a, a street altercation where, you know, surviving and, and, and going home to your family is the win. Uh, you know, if you're a, if you're in a profession where you have to use jujitsu to control people, then doing that effectively is a win. So, yes, there's absolutely winning. But uh, the, the, the notion of winning by subduing your opponent in training is, is, a, is a false one. The win is your development and you making somebody else take more steps is a clear win. And so that, that's both from a technical level of being able to recognize what the battles are and that you need to engage in them and how to engage in them. That's a win. But then also on a personal motivational level, being able to recognize what you're doing and being able to measure your own development through that is also a huge win. I wish I'd found your stuff when I was a white belt. Honestly, every <laughs> role was like a competition. And I used to sulk for ages afterwards thinking, oh, I should have done this. And, oh, he only got the tap because of that. And it, I think that's a big problem we have, especially as guys, is that ego into it. It's the, you know, we we tend to find any excuse to, rather than just going, yeah, I'm learning, you know, to, and try to be open and honest. And I had come back from a leg injury just before the lockdown. And I, I can remember feeling like I hit a plateau. Like, you know, we were getting taught these moves and there was no chain to it. You know, there's no understanding of how to go from that position to that position or why we go to do that. And it just felt like it was just these arbitrary like movement patterns just for the sake of learning it to take it off a, a list, you know, and it, I really kind of struggled with that concept, but how can we do this, you know, utilize these kind of concepts when we're drilling, when we're in clubs where, you know, they have these set plans like Gracie Barra or ATOS or these sort of things, you know, things that we, we can't just work on our own kind of concepts or have a, an illuminated, if that's the best way of putting it, coach like yourself that that's honestly the most difficult question like that's the $64,000 question I, we we have at our club a uh, a visiting student program it's on hold right now due to covid but uh prior to the lockdowns happening and all that we would host let's say between 50 and 80 people a year to our academy from all around the world uh, I was interested to come in myself. Yeah, and, and and please do. Like once once everything gets back to normal, uh, I'm really looking forward to to hosting people again because we, yeah, like for for people who aren't familiar with it, it's a free program. Anyone from any academy around the world can come to our academy, which is on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, so all they have to do is get here, and uh, well, all they have to do is contact me and, and secure a spot, and then all they got to do is get here, and we will host them for free at my place. I've got extra bedrooms in my home. Uh, this place has been a frat house at times. We've had as many as five or six people staying with us uh, and they train for free for a week at our academy. And so the, um, the process of hosting these people and uh, giving them access to our training methods, you know, live and in person almost in inevitably leads to the question of like, okay, now I'm going back to my home academy where it's a regular curriculum or random moves or whatever. How do I keep applying some of the stuff that I've learned. And, and that's a, actually, it's a very difficult question to answer because unless you have access to a like-minded training partner with whom to 
perform some of the drills, some of the fuck your jiu-jitsu rounds uh, that we do, some of the uh, like the, the, the focused rolling, having the ability to really go through like trying to understand and recognize the concepts mid roll, recording your roles and then going back and watching them. You know, a lot of people aren't okay with somebody recording a role. Uh, so you, you basically, if you're, if you don't have access to a dedicated training partner, who's following the same program that you are, it can be quite difficult. Like you, you basically are left with this sort of like guerrilla approach where you're going to go into your roles with your, uh, your training partners with sort of hidden, uh, with a hidden agenda. And that, that doesn't mean that it's nefarious. It's just that like, you know, if they're, if they don't know what fuck your jujitsu is and they don't know what you're doing, it might seem like you're being kind of a dick. Like I, I know I've certainly, uh, I, I've visited academies where I will go into a role with a very specific goal of letting the other person try to do certain things so that I can respond. And then if I achieve the goal, I reset and I go back again. And then it takes a little while for them to clue in what I'm doing. And sometimes when they do, they're actually a little bit offended. You know, like if, if, if I'm trying to pass someone's guard and as soon as I do, I go right back and I start again, they like, you know, if, if it's not properly communicated, and even if it is communicated, sometimes people can get a little bit salty about it. These people tend to have a bad attitude, but uh, it, it, which is engendered by the, the the form of training that most people go through, which is every role is a war, and how dare you just you know easily do this and then go again? But uh, yeah, the, the 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 process of applying this is very much one of using intelligent. Um, focused training it's it's using every role as an opportunity to experience as many uh as many movements as possible right so like the 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 big thing that i advocate which a lot of people find strange is that beginners at my academy are not allowed to close their guard and what that does is it eliminates the you know the the five minute role where people just sit in closed guard death gripping it with their ankles crossed as hard as they can, not letting the other person move. That is an unproductive role. You, you literally spend five minutes where neither participant gets much better at jujitsu, especially at the beginner level. So when you're trying to figure out how to do this stuff in a gym where you don't have access to the methodology, that's pretty much the only thing you can do is go into your roles and have very specific goals. And, and as a beginner, that can be very difficult because you're not able to dictate the pace of a role. You know, as a black belt, it's easy for me to go, if I'm at another academy and I grab a purple belt and I just, I'm, I'm working on whatever I want, I can do it because I can take the role in any direction that I want. And I can find something to work on no matter what happens. So even if I can't take it in the direction that I want, if it's going in a different direction, I can work on whatever direction we're going in because I've got a diverse enough skill set. As a white belt, you know, if you don't have skills in certain areas, it's it's unproductive to to be going through an area where you have no intelligent idea of what to do. You're just flailing about. So, uh, like, I wish I had a better answer other than try to find a dedicated partner or get good enough that you can steer the direction of roles and work on very specific things. Uh, because that's kind of the only answer we've found so far. I mean, cause well, the answer that I had sort of come up with in my own head was to, to you could still look at the stuff you were learning, but look at it under your concept. So, you know, like where they say, like, 
you know move the leg up to tip them onto their back or something you could say well that's actually utilizing that lever and then i'm you know changing their alignment you know they could maybe oh, understand yeah. no absolutely yeah no but that's what i mean when i say like you have to try to focus on on whichever area of the role you can control and recognize what's happening so you, you can absolutely uh like you can still develop the mental understanding of what's happening in a role, even if you can't control it. So like absolutely when you like, if you watch the core concepts and you start recognizing what frames and levers are, then even if somebody is just calving their way with you in a role, you can still be creating that mental checklist of, yep, they accessed a lever there. Oh yeah. Look, they, I, my frame failed. Oh, they, they broke my posture. Oh, they're there. Like you can recognize that. But at a certain point, uh, and, and it doesn't take very long. You're going to be good enough to do that. You're going to understand jujitsu that like, okay, I'm getting my ass kicked and I know exactly why, but there's nothing I can do about it because my training partner is uh, too much better than me right now. And I'm not able to affect any of the movements that, uh, that would be required to stop what they're doing. So uh, the absolutely at the, uh, at the beginning, just recognizing what the concepts are at play during every stage of the role can be done regardless of what your training partner is doing and regardless of your skill level. Absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a really good point. Because one of the, I used to have a training partner, a great guy called Ryan, and we would go through it and it'd be a case of, okay, this week you're not allowed to use your favorite submission. So when I first started, I was key locking everybody left, right, and center because I was a big guy. Yep. And then he said, right, you're not allowed to use that. So then I had to go away and find something else. And uh, I think it was the north-south choke I started using and hitting people all over the place with. And they said, right, you're not allowed to use those two. So I then had to go and find out, you know, my arm bars suck, so I had to develop that. And I found that was a great way of doing it. Or, you know, you're not allowed to use your favorite guard or you have to pass without using pressure passing or something which was a big thing for me um so i love that kind of idea so maybe that's a kind of way around it but he's coming back now after um the covid situation sort of hopefully loosens up soon for people listening who are maybe finding your concepts while we can't train have you found something that we can do because the mental aspect of just running through stuff in my head using your concepts makes me understand this in a lot deeper level but what else would you be wanting your students to, you know, people who maybe kind of visit? Is it just conditioning and strength stuff? Or can we take this in a deeper level using the concepts and the sort of operating system you use? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I, I gave a talk for the, the BJJ Online Summit during the lockdown where uh, I addressed how people can improve without having access to training. And the first part of it was just recognizing what the alignment concept is and how you can um, how you can understand it in your own body and in other people's bodies. The best way to do it when you don't have access to training is just to watch match video. Uh, the, the the level of understanding that you can gain from watching high level black belts compete and and seeing how these concepts apply at such an elite level. It's, it's incredibly valuable and the ability to watch roles and break them down on a conceptual level will then make your own training uh, like it'll enhance your own training because you if you are able to uh, like record your roles and then go back and watch them that's a just incredible tool for for development right like i uh, on the um, on bjj concepts we have a section called rolling analysis where 
myself or Rory, who's my partner on the site, will break down a role. Sometimes we're breaking down a, a really famous role between two high-level competitors. Sometimes it's just a role that's happening in the gym uh, between myself and someone else. Sometimes it's me competing. Uh, sometimes we do breakdowns for our subscribers where they'll send in a video and we'll, we'll break down one of their roles. So the, the, having that as a skill uh, is just going to make your overall understanding of jujitsu better, which will make your actual rolling better when you get back to it. It's really important to recognize that like when we say, when we think of jujitsu as a skill, that's a really, um, it's a, it's a, it's a way too simplistic version of, of what we're talking about when we're trying to develop skills every subset of anything that we do in jujitsu is a skill. So if we're talking about our ability to roll uh, in an exploratory fashion in the gym with an eye towards development, that by itself is a skill. There, there are plenty of people who are you know, quite good at jujitsu from having trained for half a decade or more, but they're not actually very good at getting better at jujitsu. They're, they're good because they've put in an insane amount of hours and they're gifted athletes but their ability to implement new skills is, is actually quite poor. There are a lot of really experienced black belts that have very limited games and they, they're, they're not doing a good job of expanding their game because the while they might be good at the overall skill of grappling, uh, they're not good at the skill of training in a way to maximize development. So even something as simple as just I'm going to roll is a skill that must be subdivided into uh, into various um, like derivations and and that skill needs to be cultivated. So you know the skill of watching video and being able to analyze it is, is is a different skill. The skill of watching a match in real time when one of your students or one of your teammates are competing and being able to give them instructions. So like basically cornering or coaching in real time is another skill and and it's one that most uh, jujitsu instructors are also quite terrible at. Uh, because it doesn't matter how good you are at jujitsu, if you don't have the ability to recognize what someone's doing and, and what the opportunities and, and, and pitfalls are while they're doing it in the moment and then give them concise instruction in the moment, you know, like, like I said, it, it, that's a difficult skill. You know, teaching a group class is a different skill than teaching a private class, which is a different skill than teaching a seminar, which is a different skill than teaching to a camera. So like there's so much within the world of jujitsu, both as a student, as a competitor, and then as an instructor, as a gym owner, uh, there's so many things we can develop to, to enhance ourselves uh, as practitioners, as individuals. And I mean, I'm sure this is just universal to human endeavor. There like any activity that we do, there are subsets of that activity that are their own discrete skill. And people tend to view uh, view these things as as monoliths rather than as um, something that's known as an uh, an entelechy. An entelechy is any complex adaptive system that has a bunch of constituent parts. Uh, and so, like the, the the idea of you know jujitsu as this monolith, where if you're just good at jujitsu, you're good at all parts of jujitsu. It's a it's a gross misunderstanding of how expertise works in, in any field. Uh, so uh, investing time in the, the mental aspect of understanding jiu-jitsu, investing time in recognizing 
uh, you know, movements in jujitsu, investing time in calling out movements in jujitsu for the purpose of, of coaching in a tournament. Like all of these things are, are subsets. And, and that's something that we've tried to bring to the, the online academy to BJJ Concepts. There's all these different sections where, you know, if you want to just work on your, your basic like fundamental movement patterns in jujitsu, that's what the 101 section is for. And then if you want to work on your instruction, that's what the pedagogy section is for. And that has subsections for developing different parts of, uh, of how you teach. So yeah, I, I think any uh, you know intelligent focused person who spends a little bit of time on recognizing which subsets of their jujitsu skill are lacking can find a way to develop them, whether it's the physical training or just the mental aspect of it. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. I love that because you were the first one to discuss it at that kind of level. You know, like, because I've always looked at, like, my job, for example. Um, I work full-time in addition to this. And I looked at, like, the subset of how I was dealing with somebody, you know. But, like, was it the confrontational side of it? You know, when I had to step up and tell them that, no, they were, you know, not getting the extension they asked for. Or, like, you know, the how I was dealing with people by email, the, you know, the way, the language I was using. You know, I kind of, like, I broke it farther and farther down. And as I kind of looked into this, I thought, fixing a wee bit here and then you know putting it back into the analysis and seeing the effect it had and it's like okay and i started trying to look at jujitsu in that sense of if i worked on this or blocked off access to my favorite tool here how would that then affect my role or if i went in and played my worst guard how would that then affect my training or my understanding of x you know and it definitely works and i think that's the problem though is we're stuck with these kind of you know, like these groups that say, no, no, our jiu-jitsu is the best version of jiu-jitsu. No, you're not allowed to deviate from it. And you kind of have to do that with a training partner in a sense. And it's a real shame, but you did mention before in another podcast about the philosophy of going from a a blue belt to a brown belt in another situation. When you were talking about training with somebody, you were wanting to get them to train up to, to the best they can in a certain position. Would that be a good way of looking at you know of how we improve our jiu-jitsu taking these subsets and going from blue belt to brown belt then picking something else and going blue belt to brown belt to gradually build it up from the smaller stepping stone so to speak yeah absolutely because it doesn't matter how good you are at any subset skill in jiu-jitsu you're going to be a white belt at something right like i usually give the uh, the example of leg locks because that was something that uh uh, I was kind of an early adopter with leg locks, left it alone for a while, and there was a, a pretty big revolution in, in the game with, that I had to catch up with, and, and now I'm fairly current with it again. And so like, I, I probably went through the point of you know, going from a white belt to you know, black belt level in leg locks, and then my level you know, changed relative to the best people. And so like, people get very insecure about belt rank uh and 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 what it means and like i think it's really important for people to understand that 
all these skills are relative and the having this notion that oh i'm a black belt therefore that means that you know i shouldn't lose or i shouldn't have to learn this or that's a really bad trap to fall into every position you start out in you're a white belt in that position you know uh, maybe if you have a really good understanding of the concepts you can start out as a blue belt in that position but anytime you're adding something new you need to have that uh, you know that beginner's mindset or that growth mindset that you know if i dedicate some time to this i'm going to become quite good at it uh, and and believing that you're too good for something or as you mentioned having this kind of tribal uh, identity that like oh this type of jujitsu is good like uh, you know, or this brand of jujitsu is the best, and you know, like some people talk about old school jujitsu, and then some people talk about self defense jujitsu, and then some people talk about particular affiliates and, and their brand of jujitsu. Like, no one um, methodology uh, is going to have all of the answers because it's impossible for any one, uh, you know, any one coach to have such a a breadth and depth of knowledge that they can make you good in all situations. It, it's it's really important to be open to learning from multiple sources. Like, you know, I've got an affiliation that I belong to, but I learn from everybody. I, I definitely, uh, you know, like I've kind of made my career on going out and training with the best and trying to distill what they did into this, this conceptual vernacular that I have. Like that's, uh, you know, aside from the concepts that I teach, being able to take cutting edge information in the sport and, and breaking it down into the, the language that we use is, is something else that people find really helpful. So if, if I wasn't open to going out and learning from everybody, if I had any kind of tribal um, association with, you know, this is the best and I can't look at that, and da, 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 that, that would really, uh, that would really subvert uh, any ambitions that I would have to, to do what I've done. Uh, and so I, I think regardless of your level of experience, uh, taking that approach is going to be immensely beneficial. Because something that I was very interested in asking was, you, you talked on another um, episode of a podcast where it was about the, you know, the distance you are away from everywhere and how you had to sort of learn a lot of the training stuff, you you know, that you wanted to, you had to become great at all aspects of your jiu-jitsu because you didn't have the ability just to have another coach to come in and teach that sort of thing. So you kind of... It was like the distance, how it affected your your coaching and how you've set up your sort of philosophy of your your brand, so to speak. But also with these students coming in from different training places, do you think that's helped you then learn and evolve and become a better coach, but also kind of take a bit of this person's jiu-jitsu, a bit of this brand's jiu-jitsu, and kind of build your own like unique hybrid system from it? You know, and then using your concepts, you've kind of been able to teach it on a grander scale. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I mean, the, the 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 design of the visiting student program was partially based around that notion. Is that so? Like, on the one hand, because of the relative geographic isolation here, uh, you know, I, I didn't have access to a, a multitude of uh, high level training partners, especially at the beginning. That like they're really there wasn't anything handy for uh, you know, high-level people to roll with, so I tried to take uh, you know as many of my students and develop within them skill sets in individual positions. Like I said, going from somebody being a white belt to a blue belt to a purple belt in that position, and then utilizing their skill in that position as an opportunity to battle them in their best position was my way of pursuing my own training. 
Uh, and then the visiting student program is another way of diversifying the uh, just the different skill sets and movement patterns that you're going to see in the room. Like as much as I might try to teach people, uh, you know, a variety of different skills, there are always going to be things that uh, you know other people from other schools do that we just don't do very much. So part of the the ambition with the visiting student program is to share, but the uh, you know the benefit of it is also to receive right so the uh, the visitors that have come through have absolutely uh, like they've, they've paid a, a huge dividend uh, to uh, to my students in that like generally speaking most of the people who visit aren't the you know like the they're not high level competitors they're not super high ranked although we have had people like that visit um, but generally speaking, they're not really going to contribute to my jujitsu. I like, like I say that with all humility. Um, but uh, it, what they have done is benefited my students. They like seeing different movements, being able to respond to uh, techniques that people don't utilize very often at my academy has been immensely beneficial for me. It's more like I took it upon myself to travel to experience, you know, elite level practitioners and 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 try to. Uh, benefit from training with them in in terms of uh, my jujitsu being changed by uh, you know experiencing movements that I don't get to see at home very often. So I would say that the the visiting student program stuff has been more for my students than for myself. But anytime you can uh, take yourself outside of a closed environment, it's going to be beneficial. Uh, like the, the the complaint that I have in in my area is that. Uh, although that's slowly changing, is that most of the schools uh, on the island are quite isolated. They don't go out and, and train with very many people outside of their own school or their own lineage. Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty insular. And so they develop something that we call inbred jujitsu, right? If, if all you ever do is train with your own students in your own school, you're going to have huge blind spots and, and, and limitations, uh, especially if you don't have a conceptual approach to jujitsu. If you just have a, I learned these techniques and I'm only good at dealing with the techniques that I face in training all the time, that's going to be severely limiting. So the, the combination of traveling to train with elite people, of having visitors come from all over the place and getting exposed to what, uh, you know, what they do with their games and having the opportunity to use the concepts that I teach to adapt on the fly to, uh, to different styles all of that has contributed to, uh, to making a, like a like creating a grappling methodology that is it's immensely enjoyable. I it's not often that I can go into a role and just feel totally flummoxed, uh, even when rolling with really good people. Like I, I'll lose because if somebody is you know more experienced and better at jujitsu than I am, especially if they're a better athlete and they're younger and stronger and fitter and all that than I am, I'm going to lose. Uh, Ultimately, uh, you know, the, uh, I won't be as effective in the entire role as they will be, but I will have success in in ways that I wouldn't have if I didn't have this conceptual understanding. If I wasn't able to deconstruct things, uh, you know, when I roll with really good practitioners, I'm able to understand the role and take things away from the role because of the conceptual analysis that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And, and I just know from experience having learned the sort of classic way and rolling with people and losing and not knowing why and being extremely frustrated with it. And now, you know, if, if I go through a role and, and I'm not able to be effective with certain movements, I know exactly why I'm not able to be effective with those movements. So yeah, like I, I it's, um, 
it's it's just incredibly important to have a framework for understanding jujitsu and then take that framework and whether it's through visitors, whether it's through travel, uh, whether it's through just going to open mats. And if, you know, if you're in a city where you've got uh, a good diversity of schools and there are a lot of open mats you can go to and you can be exposed to different people, you don't have to go far from home. You don't have to have a visiting student program. You know, most people, if they're in a big city, there are a, a variety of open mats they can go to where they will experience this, especially if you're not inclined to compete. You know, the best way to experience you know, like somebody coming after you with stuff that you don't know is to go out and compete because it, it involves a level of um, of immediacy and a level of, uh, of let's just danger uh, that doesn't exist in roles in the gym. But if you're not inclined to do that, then going to open mats and, and experiencing that is uh, is probably the best way to do it. Like a lot of people went through when COVID really hit and said, that's it, we're shutting down. I'll give you a free instructional. So everybody kind of collected, you know, five or six instructionals. Now, you're probably going to hate this question, but can you use your concepts, the, you know, the, the look, the analysis we talked about earlier on, can we pick up Gordon Ryan's passing strategy, um, Marcelo Garcia's, you know, like guard on this section? Can we pick up Stefan's rear naked choke or something like that? Can we incorporate different parts or understand these things on a deeper level, do you think? Or is it best just to sit, watch them and go, okay, I'll try that move? Oh, no, definitely. So I've, I get a lot of uh, emails or like messages on Instagram from people who have purchased, the, whether it's the BJJ Formula, the original product that I did with Stefan, or BJJ Concepts, which is my online academy. Uh, anyone who's gone through my sort of core concepts material, uh, they will message me and they'll say that their ability to um, to like take in or consume instructionals has changed because of the, the, the language that we use and the way that they're now able to understand jujitsu, they are able to watch an instructional and for one, they're able to better recognize when some instructionals are dog shit and when they're not, <laughs> There's, I have had a, quite a few emails of people like those. They'll send me a, a, you know, a link to a YouTube video advertising some instructional. like, man, before I saw your material, I think this kind of stuff was great. Now I know not to bother. <laughs> so, but when it comes to consuming the, uh, like the really quality instructionals, there's definitely an added factor uh, of having a, a background in understanding jujitsu conceptually. Just it makes taking on new information easier because when you understand the you know the when you understand the constituent parts of something, building something with those constituent parts is just easier. So taking one building block, which is the information in an instructional, uh, and adding it to your game just becomes easier when you understand it conceptually. So yes, absolutely. Like the, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I touched on that a little bit in that, that talk that I did for the BJJ online summit, but absolutely. If you've got instructionals that like, I know people have taken an instructional and kind of put it on the shelf and they've watched some of the stuff that I put out and then they can actually go back and watch uh, someone else's instructional and have a different view on it, which is, is, it's really cool. So yeah, absolutely. Like a good quality instructional, will like i mean i watch instructionals you know uh, it's the we're in a really fortunate time in our sport where you do have access to the best people in our sport putting out good information um sometimes the best people in our sport even though they're putting out good information aren't necessarily the best communicators 
And some athletes do inevitably suffer from something that's known as a miscalibrated explanatory insight, which is a, it's a psychological phenomenon uh, that exists. And it's been pretty well studied. Uh, it exists for elite athletes where they, they're, they're doing a movement, but they don't understand exactly how they're doing the movement. So their way of describing how they do the movement is not actually accurate. And again, this, uh, I, I usually apply the tennis example because when this was studied, they actually used the tennis player and they had him explain his serve motion and then they had him perform the serve motion and uh, broke it down on video and they used the video analysis and his terminology did not accurately describe the serve motion. And so the term miscalibrated explanatory insight is, is just that. They're trying to explain something, but because they lack the necessary insight into what they're doing, they're not able to explain it as well. And so I, I've, I've had people message me about how they, like, they watched somebody else's instructional, and even though that instructional didn't give them enough insight into how the movement worked because of the explanation, the fact that they were able to recognize the rotational control and the end of the lever and, and all the stuff that we talk about, they were able to, to still derive the correct answer, or the correct methodology from just watching the person do it and kind of deduce it from that movement and less so from their actual explanation. So I, I think, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're willing to put the time in to understand something on a deeper level, the, the benefits will be, you know, again, if we want to add to that sort of skill tree, watching instructionals and deciphering them can be a skill that you can be adding uh, and that will benefit your jujitsu as well. Because I've seen something like that where they've said to like top performers, describe what you're doing and say, like, you know, like the tennis serve, for example. And then they've said to somebody else, read that and then try to mimic it. And, yeah. you know, they've gone completely awry because the little thing that they, the, the, you know, the star performer doesn't even know they're doing or doesn't pay attention to is maybe the one thing, you know, like the way they shift their weight or the, you know, how they rotate themselves or invert or whatever it is. And, it is amazing how you don't know the be the the best thing you're doing. You know, you don't pick up. It's just natural, and that's the beauty of jujitsu. Is there is open to your interpretation of it. You can create your own kind of brand of it, because I've come from a Gracie Barra gym where they would say things like, "Okay, now we should all be starting from this position, and this is the part. This is where you should go to in every role." And I thought that works for small guys, you know, mobile guys, fast guys. Not for big larch guys like me, like you know, larch at the Adams family kind of thing. I I'm better suited in another position, but I felt like it was all kind of cookie cutter, you know. Like this is what we were taught. That's the way to do it, and it, I think that's why a lot of people struggle with it. Is you try to mimic Gordon Ryan when you should be mimicking like Craig Jones, or you know, like when I came to Stefan and yourself, I was like, ah, these guys get it. You know, it, they're not, they're, you know, you're not just forcing us down your chosen path. You're giving us actual the ways to do it without adding like a sort of a brand on the back of our arse, you know, like juicy and all these kind of shitty things do. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think that jujitsu, like one of the, the great things about it is it, because it's so diverse in the the movement pathways that can work even at the highest levels. Uh, I, I, there, I don't think there are too many, uh, combat sports where that's possible. Like obviously there's a, a bit of diversity 
in how people will box or how people will wrestle, but I, I think it's 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 a lot more diminished. Uh, the 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 ways that you can succeed in jujitsu are are myriad, and because of that, I, I think jujitsu is unique amongst combat sports as a vehicle for self expression. You can find a game that fits your body type and personality and disposition uh, in in so many different ways, and trying to you know, shoehorn people into some sort of cookie cutter version of, uh, of somebody else's jujitsu, I don't think is, is super beneficial. So the, and then that's, again, another area where understanding really what jujitsu is, that it's not movements and like, oh, you do this move and that's the best way. And that's the only way, um, understanding optimal movement patterns and understanding that there are multiple ways to get the job done, uh, is, uh, it's huge because, you know, I, I our, like our ultimate goal as uh, you know as, as a western civilization is to uh, you know create individual freedom and liberty for for the, for the people involved uh, and, and and maximize that freedom for the people involved and I, I think that at its at its you know highest expression that's what jiu-jitsu should be it's a it's a it's a way of expressing your individuality what would you want a coach to have, you know, like say if somebody's sitting there just now and they're going to go back to their jiu-jitsu in two, three, five years or whatever, however this COVID thing's going to go on for, what would you want them to be doing um, in the meantime? Now, would this be in terms of things like visualization, journaling? Would you want them to be mentally going through movements, um, would you be wanting them to be reading to kind of open their mind on the cognitive behavior and like their best learning styles? Would you want them to be just run doing some lap, you know, miles on the road or doing some weight training? Or would you know, is there anything we can do to become better away from the mats in this sort of troublesome time? Uh, you know, that, that honestly depends on how long you're looking at being away from the mats. Uh, I, I tend to think that, although, I mean, I, I, there are a few places in the world where gyms have been closed pr- probably since March and still are. We're in the like middle. A- yeah. Like we're in the middle of September right now. So we're looking at six months in. Um, but I think that's the minority. Like I, I, most places that have got COVID somewhat under control, gyms have reopened usually within about three months. Um, and, and in some places that don't have it under control, they're still just open regardless. Uh, (laughs) so, you know, for better or worse. Right. Um, so it's just kind of, uh, like, yeah, that's a, it's a difficult question to answer without knowing the timeline in advance. You know, like if, you know, what I would do if I knew I had to be off the mats for a year is different than what I would do if I knew I had to be off the mats for two two or three months. Mm -hmm. Um, any of the things that you suggested, I think would be helpful. Uh, certainly fitness, if like any amount of time, if you're healthy and you're not rolling, you should be working on your fitness. Uh, that that's just a given, um, uh, again, depending on how long you're going to be away from the mats, uh, visualization is great. Uh, visualization is phenomenal for competition. So when we talk about that, we can maybe get into it more. So like, yeah, I'd say maybe let's, let's try to table that for like, short-term, long-term, and intermediate-term like competition goals uh, when we talk more about competing next time. What books and what happened when you were younger where you started to really understand this? Was there a point where you thought, 
you know, what attracted you to the science aspect of it, the analysis, the trying to understand it on a deeper level, the physics side of it, or the, you know, how did your sort of learning approach to this allow you to think, do you know, I can do something with this and I can, I'm really good at teaching and explaining and coaching and things like that. Well, you know, I actually had a really interesting experience when I was quite young. I was a Taekwondo student at the time. Uh, and so I think I was 15 and, uh, I was one of the higher ranked students. And I guess I had covered a few classes here and there and I had students come to me afterwards and they would, uh, they told me that they, they were understanding the material better when I taught the class. And I, I was 15 at the time, so like just to give you an idea of how, how long ago this was. Um, but, but they, they had mentioned like a few students had mentioned they understood the material better when I was presenting it and I didn't have anywhere near the kinds of, um, uh, you know, exposure to proper coaching methods. I think I was just a, a relatively gifted communicator. I've always loved the, um, the English language. I, from a young age, like I, I used to read encyclopedias as a child. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a dictionary in my bathroom, so I would sit down and study words while I was taking a shit. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, like uh, the, you know, it, it's, it's funny when you see like the, when you start pulling at the threads of your life, where where those threads take you and i'm sure if i hadn't had those formative experiences i wouldn't have pursued becoming a, a martial arts teacher um which is why i'm so aware of how much work it takes to like uh to arrive at this um the, the, you know this teaching methodology independently it was you know it was a lifetime of study it was being interested in science being interested in like i, I read uh, almost exclusively nonfiction and have for a long time Although I don't have as much time to read now that I'm a business owner, but prior to opening my school, I would read extensively, you know, usually a book or two a week. Uh, and most of it is science uh, of one kind or another. Uh, so like I'm still, I would say, a, a complete dilettante in, when it comes to actual science, but I, I'm fairly well versed in what the methodology is and, and how it can be applied to life. And, you know, it, it's... It's the, the people that I respect the most are the the people that uh, are unflinching in their view uh, on you know arriving at truth. They recognize that they do not hold the the key to anything other than a method of arriving at the truth. And the there's a a, a wonderful uh, story that Richard Dawkins tells about. A symposium. Where I, I I can't remember which branch of science it, it was on, but there's a a presenter there, and he basically uh, either debunked or uh, you know presented new information. Uh, and there was another uh, attendee at the symposium who had spent a lifetime on this theory, and that theory was uh, effectively debunked. Uh, by this this uh, this uh, this other presenter, and the guy who had had his life's work turned upside down by this new information went up to the guy who had turned his life upside down and thanked him. He's like, you know, thank you for showing me the truth. And those are the people that I respect the most: somebody who can honestly and unflinchingly change course because of new information, because they're not so beholden to. Uh, a particular approach they just want to get at the truth uh, so uh, that's 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 why i'm so uh, just melancholy these days about the state of the world and uh, about the sort of individuals that, that we're dealing with because the the level to which people have uh 
just embraced absolutely unscientific thinking and anti excuse me anti intellectualism uh, just guarantees that these sorts of things will will not happen as much anymore and people aren't willing to just turn around and change their mind on something because they don't care about the evidence because they don't care about the truth because they believe that their team has the truth and they're they're too personally invested uh, in their identity uh, to, to ever change so yeah it's been a it's been a lifetime of study and of trying to get at better answers and and changing methodology uh, when better answers arrive that, that that's led to this for me because that's the thing though is like science is almost coming from the approach that we want you to tell us we're wrong we want to find out you know we can't we, we have an idea of uh, a hypothesis in mind but we don't stick to that or find evidence that supports that we then look and say you know can this stand up in a double blind placebo test can this stand up if we jimmy across the across the water does the test you know is the same data going to come back you know and it's it's tested repeatedly and, repeatedly and it's almost like you know if we do find something that doesn't work we go okay and then we come up with a new analysis from that whereas i think people are just now it's again tied up to your ego, tied up to your understanding of the world, and it scares people to think they're wrong, to to, to ask for other people's opinions. You're never going to get that nowadays of somebody debunking somebody without it being fake news or some other yeah. bullshit claim. And it's, it's sad because that's how we learned. Oh, I think this is the best way of learning how to ride my bike. Oh, I fell off. Oh, somebody, you know, my big brother showed me how to say it. Right. That explains the why I fell off because I went too low around the cattle grid or something like that, you know. And it, it's, it's, I think we're missing that. And I, do you think that's where a lot of jujitsu new beginners go wrong? Is they come with a very, you know, I'm a big strong guy, I'm going to smash that girl, or um, I am fast, so I should only look at fast guys. They don't look at outside kind of. Yeah, I think. I think getting your identity tied up in any particular thing can be harmful. Uh, so yeah, like if your identity is that I'm a tough guy, jujitsu is going to suck for you. <laughs> you know, if you know, when you get subbed by a, you know, 120 pound girl, that's going to be a bad day for you. Whereas if you're viewing it through a scientific lens, it's going to be a great day because you will have conducted an experiment and the, the experiment that you just conducted proved to you that jujitsu works. And isn't that why you're here? Isn't that why you decided to take it? Like if, if you could show up and take a martial art and be able to beat experienced practitioners of that martial art within uh, you know a few weeks or a few months, then why would you take that martial art? You know, the answer is that you're, you're trying to get a, you know, an identity gratification and ego gratification. And I, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, a failing testament to our society and our educational systems that people seek knowledge for the sake of uh, identity gratification rather than for the sake of knowledge, rather for the sake of uh, arriving at truth. Uh, and so, you know, that's why you see the, this, um, this prevalence of cult thinking in, in, in U.S. politics, in, well, in politics around the world in general, uh, in, in, again, in, in conspiracy theories, and that people aren't seeking knowledge for knowledge, for the sake of knowledge. They're seeking knowledge for the sake of emotional comfort. And there's no way that real knowledge and science can compete in the realm of emotional comfort with conspiracy theories, with tribal political thinking, with tribal religious thinking, 
because uh, you know all, all of those uh, frankly horribly flawed ways of perceiving the world because that's all those things are the all those methods of perceiving the world are just they're they're deeply flawed they're just uh, they're unarguably wrong um but they provide intense emotional comfort and so there's just like science doesn't provide emotional comfort all it provides is we're gonna get the answer you may not like the answer so when you want to like the answer you're gonna run towards there's a global cabal of people that are controlling the world, uh, you know, whether it's the, whether it's QAnon and the, the global ring of pedophiles or whether it's the flat earth and, you know, people are keep like the, you know, every single human being involved in science and transportation in every way is in on the, on the conspiracy, whatever it is, as stupid as it is, emotionally weak people derive comfort from knowing that someone is in control whether it's Allah or Yahweh or Zeus or the Illuminati, it makes them feel better to know that there's a plan. Uh, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the speech that the Joker gave in The Dark Knight. It's like, as long as there's a plan, people are okay. You know, and, and that's why people gravitate to these sorts of, you know, insane ways of thinking because it's emotionally comforting. So, like, there's just, there's no way for the the hard reality revealed by science to compete with the you know the milk bottle of comfort uh, afforded to emotionally weak people by conspiracy thinking so in that sense as far as those kinds of people are concerned we're doomed we're never going to reach them uh, we, we we just have to create a new generation of individuals that are emotionally stronger because they've been educated to the scientific method and they know that regardless of what happens at least they'll be able to arrive at uh, at the right answers something i was really impressed with was um you had a really unfortunate fire um at your academy where did you find the sort of strength to get back into it you know and what did that teach you about that you know the damage to your property like what did it kind of because a lot of people that would have ruined them but you seem to have actually come back stronger with a, you know, a deeper understanding and stuff like that. But how do you know? How, what did you learn from that unfortunate incident about you as a person, about the like, you know, the community that you're in and that sort of thing? Yeah, you have a great local community. Yeah, uh, you know, that's it's an interesting question because I think that with situations like that, people are going to be more inclined to heap praise upon themselves for how they reacted. And I don't know that there was any other way that I could have reacted. Like, bottom line is I got a phone call that, you know, the place had burnt down, not burnt down, but like there was a big fire and like we, we wouldn't have access to our training space. Uh, and I had to find us a new place to train. That, that, that's it. It was just, okay, now let me, let's find a temporary place to train and then let's find a new location and build a new academy. It was literally you just you do what you have to do in the situation uh it, it was it was compounded by the fact that in the same week i actually found out that my mom was diagnosed with cancer and so Thanks. if anything yeah it was it was the worst week of my life by far um if anything being able to focus on rebuilding an academy 
gave me a, like a, a really useful distraction from, you know, driving my mom to the hospital for, for cancer treatment. Uh, like that, that, like, you know, so like the, it just wasn't that bad, you know, like, Oh, it was, it was difficult in terms of the workload because I was pulling, you know, probably 14, 16 hour days, just like, you know, waking up and, you know, trying to build a new facility, I had to fire my, uh, my contractor and, and take over the, 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 like the general contracting so that I wasn't doing the work, but I was hiring, like I had to fire my general contractor. So I had to go and like purchase equipment and deliver it to the site and then hire trades and, and deal with city hall and do all that shit. And then I would have to go and teach the classes at the temporary location. And then that, so like, I, I, I just didn't have a minute to myself. Uh, you, you just, you, you, set down the goals and you do them. I, I, I think that that, that's the, uh, the, the real answer there. I, I, I don't think that I had time to sit down and like muster up some great, like reserve of willpower or anything. It was just, you, you know, there's a task in front of you and you do it. Uh, I suppose that kind of links back to your, your approach, you know, like you're saying, it's like science doesn't give, you know, gives you the answers. You don't have to like them, but it's the truth. And it's like, did you have somewhere to train? No. Do you need to find somewhere? Yes. And then you kind of just take the emotion out of it and just deal with it. And I suppose you could reflect later on to it. Um, yeah, because... Yeah, because I, like, I know I've been in situations where something uh, unfortunate has happened and there hasn't been a, a course of action that I could take. I just have to wait. I have to wait for an answer. I have to wait for someone else to do something. Uh, like in, in, in situations like that, I am horrible. I, I hate it. I, the lack of control is very difficult. I don't want to sit there and wait for someone else to, to do something. I want to take action. So a situation like that, if like it was, like I said, it was emotionally draining and it was physically very taxing and very difficult. But there wasn't anything other than to just do it. Um, and like there was, I, I, I will say this, if somebody had told me going into it how much of a pain in the ass it was going to be dealing with the city bureaucracy, I probably would have just closed up shop and gone and, 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 and moved somewhere else and just, uh, you know, either opened a school somewhere else or tried to get a job teaching for someone else. The, 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 in terms of the, the, for the frustrating kind of like Kafka-esque Byzantine, uh, you know, labyrinth of dealing with, uh, you know, local, uh, just government requirements, which by the way, wasn't even all that difficult. I can only imagine what it would have been when it, um, when it comes to like a really bad experience with a, uh, you know, a government bureaucracy, mine was probably pretty tame by comparison, but even still, it was just, it was so intolerable to me that if I had known going in what it would have been like, I, I don't think I would have done it. Uh, so, you know, like it, there was definitely some, uh, some fortitude that I had to uh, draw on to deal with the uncertainty of having my life in somebody else's hands, somebody who is not inclined to be, uh, you know, even somewhat helpful. Uh, although there were uh, people in that department that were, there were other people that were almost actively against small business and 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 just wanting to be as as, as horrible as possible to you in, in uh, throughout the process. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll say like if there were, if there was a a uh, if I felt there was a choice on giving up. I may have done so if I had known going into it just what, what the process was going to be like. 
Because I would have hated that. Because I hate, well, back then especially, I hated not being in control and not being like somebody leading something. Because I had, I remember when I had three grandparents die in the same sort of year with different variations of cancer. And I was like, it was seeing somebody almost crumble before you. And I hated that, not being able to do anything or feel like I could do something. And I think only now would you jitsu have kind of understood just being there and talking to somebody or just being there, you know, it it lets you kind of, I don't know, it's helped me express emotion better because I, I don't bottle things up as much because I physically let it out. And, you know, it's all these amazing benefits of jiu-jitsu and it's surprising how it helps you in that kind of situation without even realizing that's the core bit of it, you know? It's... Oh, I'm, I'm sure that the, the my response to the fire and all that stuff was uh, informed by the experience of training jiu-jitsu, that, that, like, w- without a doubt. Uh, I, uh, I I don't know how much it did, so I, I don't like to speculate on stuff like that uh, because, like I said, I think it's really easy to be too self-congratulatory mm-hmm. uh, about, oh, you know, I went through a difficult time and I came out on the other end of it, Um how much it was my, you know, previous experience in life uh, prior to jujitsu, how much it was jujitsu, how much it was me waking up in the morning and being like, okay, we're going to get through this no matter what. I don't know. Uh, and so I, I don't want to, I don't want to speculate too much. Uh, I think that if you just decide that you're the sort of person that gets things done, you're going to be the sort of person that gets things done. <laughs> it really is. It's like, I've gotten a lot of compliments throughout my life on, being uh, an individual that has discipline and fortitude and all that kind of stuff. And people ask how I arrive at it. And I always like, if I'm going to give advice about it, that is the advice that I give is just decide that that's the sort of person that you're going to be because identity is so pernicious in so many ways. As we kind of talked about when it comes to politics or religion or or just being unwilling to uh, take in new information, despite it being demonstrably true. That if you if you recognize the power of identity, you can use it for you know nefarious purposes, or you can use it for really uh, beneficial, powerful purposes. So if you forge an identity around being the sort of person that does what they say they're going to do and gets things done, then you're going to have a really powerful tool because it'll be so an- anathematic to your identity to uh, to give up to to just. Uh, to, to, to let go of a situation, you'll find a way through it if that's the sort of person you've decided to be. What would you want people listening to take from this? You know, is it a goal, a takeaway message from the philosophy side of jiu-jitsu and kind of learning and the understanding of it? I, I mean, it would just be that jiu-jitsu is kind of like science in that it should be a, a quest for truth. And if you let that be how you pursue your jiu-jitsu and you let that be how you pursue your life, uh, you might not always be happy, but you will always have the tools to deal with reality uh, in a way that is beneficial rather than hiding your head in the sand. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. 
Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.